You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. What can you expect when you go to heaven? This week, Pastor Tom continues a series simply entitled Heaven. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. That's wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. We're so glad you're getting caught up. Let's get right into the message titled, What Should I Expect About Heaven? Well, good morning, Word of Life. It's great to see everybody. I've had a lot of people ask me if I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Anyway. We're continuing uh, the series we started last week on heaven, and I don't mind telling you, it's been um, extremely insightful, and I don't mind sharing with you, it's been deeply challenging to dive into this and to really start asking some difficult questions of myself uh, in hopes to be able to bring something helpful to the church. Uh, One of the things I did see this week is that there was a study completed by the Pew Research in 2021, and they concluded that approximately only 17% of Americans do not believe in an afterlife at all. Only 17% of Americans believe that nothing happens at all once we die. Now, that surprised me because it certainly doesn't feel like the country is living like 83% of us believe that there is an eternity. And my hope and prayer is that by spending a few weeks talking about heaven, it will give believers some helpful understanding about what the Bible teaches and maybe will spark some curiosity and inspire some questions in people who are among the 83% who are uncertain about faith and may not know the message of Jesus. But last week, to get us started in the series, I, I tried to go big picture and tried to give an overarching thought about heaven and eternity from the Bible. And the big picture idea that I brought to the church was that the kingdom of heaven is the ultimate story of restoration. This was the real heart of the message last week, is that the kingdom of heaven, eternity, is the ultimate story of restoration. And to have something be restored, it means that something was lost or broken or damaged. And for us, as you and I, as eternity and as creation, what was it that was lost? And what was lost was enjoying creation. At the fall, what was lost was our relationship with God. What was lost is having eternal life, and what has been lost is our innocence. But what is fully restored in heaven? And what we talked about last week is that there's a restoration of creation. There's the restoration of our relationship with God. There's the restoration of our bodies. And then fourthly, there's the restoration of innocence. And so for today, I want to get more into the details and specific. If last week was kind of overarching big picture, I'm hoping today to get more into the details and specifics. And we're going to have at least one more week of this series, and I'm confident that there will still be questions that we didn't get to. But to try and be helpful, I'm going to recommend a few books and a few that I've already mentioned uh, that hopefully will give insight for anyone who wants to continue digging deeper. The first book, I mentioned this one last week, this is uh, simply titled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And this really is a, it's a, a large book, it's a big read, um, but it really is a very thorough and diligent walk through the scriptures that talk about heaven and eternal life, and that's been extremely helpful. And then this past week, I spent a lot of time in a book called Bible Doctrines. And uh, this book, Bible Doctrines, is really the go-to theology textbook that they hand out at Assemblies of God colleges or seminaries. And so this one, especially the last four chapters uh, that deal with heaven and eternity and even the second coming of Jesus, was extremely helpful this week. And so this is one I definitely dug into a lot. And then there's also a website that I found extremely helpful. 
Uh, there's an organization called Eternal Perspective Ministries, and their website is simply www.epm.org. And so I found that very helpful. They've got a search bar, and every question I put in there, um, it came up with a really reasonable, well-thought-out, well-written answer. And so for those of you that want to continue looking uh, at this whole subject and this whole idea, those hopefully will be some helpful resources. But in the time we spend in this series, we definitely won't be able to cover every question or concern about heaven fully, so hopefully they do uh, get you going as you're continuing to study. And I don't mind telling you that today we are going to cover a lot of ground. Um, as I sat down, as I sort of started to prepare and lay everything down, I could not find a way to bring this to you without covering a lot of ground. And so um, this really is, you know, sort of an exploration of a brand new island rather than digging deep to see what minerals are beneath the surface. So we are intentionally going to be going wide rather than deep. But to get us started, let's start in Matthew 6, verse 19. Jesus talking, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will be also. Now this gives us a slight understanding of heaven that the treasures of earth are temporal and they depreciate but the things of heaven last forever. But the main challenge of that passage, of that illustration from Jesus, is that what we value tells us about the state of our heart. And as a follower of Jesus, my heart and my concern and my priorities should be toward heaven. This should be the state of my heart, that heaven is my highest priority and focus. Do we value the kingdom of heaven? Is that where my treasure is? Because if it is, then my heart, my life, my values will all follow. It defines my priorities. It's natural and predictable that we would all ask, what should I expect about heaven? I'm going to try and answer that today, and there may well be questions that you still have, and I hope that the books I've mentioned give you a good insight, and that we're going to continue this series, of course, next week. But the first thing that I wanted to talk about and discuss with you is what happens when we die? What happens when we die? Last week, I mentioned the verse of where Jesus is teaching everyone to pray, and in the Lord's Prayer, he says that famous line of, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I kind of got my hands, and I kind of tried to do this illustration of where we have the kingdom of heaven, and we have earth as we know it. And on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus came 2,000 years ago, launched the church, launched the kingdom that he is establishing, it kind of built this overlap that there are moments where we have on earth as it is in heaven. There are moments of miraculous healing. There are moments of supernatural provision. There are moments of breakthrough. There are moments of experiencing God's presence. But on earth as it is in heaven is a beginning process. What's going to happen is that when the Lord comes and the second coming is complete, that is going to become one. That on earth as it is in heaven, that the new creation that God is restoring is going to be indistinguishable from heaven. God is going to dwell here in his fullness. There is going to be no more death, no more sickness, no more weeping is what the Bible promises. But that overlap is going to be complete. And one day when Jesus fully initiates his kingdom, the new heavens and earth will be our eternal home, and heaven and earth will be indistinguishable. Now, if someone dies before the second coming, the Bible talks about them going to be with Jesus in paradise. Famously, Jesus said to the thief on the cross that asked for mercy, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the word paradise in English is used to describe exotic places and somewhere relaxing and enjoyable. For instance, no adult has ever described a kid's birthday party as paradise. But the way we use the word in modern English, it helps us understand how the first century people used the word to describe heaven, somewhere perfect and calm and peaceful and enjoyable. 
The way Jesus talks about paradise here, it's also used by Paul and John in the book of Revelation. It speaks about a place outside of creation, a heavenly place distinct from the world. And last week, I spent a long time saying that the Bible teaches that we will spend eternity in a restored creation, so it may seem like I'm contradicting myself. So let me lay that out for you. Our eternal home will indeed be the new heavens and the new earth, the restored creation that the Bible describes. And if a believer dies before the second coming, and they go to be with Jesus in paradise, just like the thief on the cross, prior to the second coming, those that are in Christ go to heaven. And that's where we live and enjoy being with the Lord until the time when Jesus returns. Those already in heaven are waiting for the second coming, just like we are. This is called paradise or the intermediate state. And a new phrase I learned this week is the present heaven. They all describe the place where believers dwell until the Lord completes the transformation of the new heavens and the new earth. As I was preparing for today, there was a temptation to start unpacking the details around the end times, but we're specifically talking about heaven, so I'll try and be concise and focused. And when Jesus returns, the church, the followers of Jesus, will be raptured, caught up into heaven. The Bible talks about two people being side by side, and one will be gone, but the other will remain. There is, of course, much speculation about what this is all going to look like and how it's all going to work. But the rapture of the church is the start of a series of events that are spoken about in the New Testament and especially the book of Revelation. The rapture signifies the start of the great tribulation and the deception of the Antichrist. Following that, we have the millennial reign of Christ where Jesus will reign the earth for a thousand years. Satan is then released from bondage before he faces judgment and is condemned to hell for eternity. And following that, Jesus returns. And with Satan and evil banished forever, the kingdom will finally be completely established in the new heavens and the new earth. Now again, I'm aware that I'm skimming over this at a surface level, but it's worth saying that the book of Revelation is deliberately written by John with striking images and vivid descriptions and a large number of symbols and analogies. Many people are attracted to studying the finer details of the book of Revelation and the end times and the second coming. And I truly hope that as a Bible believer, that if anyone gains inspiration and edification from their studies, I applaud their efforts. Oftentimes as human beings, we want a play-by-play description of the end times. But the New Testament writers, they didn't write a step-by-step guide. Consequently, this is an area where people will study and come to some different conclusions. And I want to offer a big picture message that carries weight regardless of where some may differ in their understanding of some of the specific details. The one sentence summary to remember from what the Bible has to say about the end times is this. Jesus Christ has conquered the power of sin and death. And all who declare he is Lord should take heart, stay faithful in all circumstances, and we will see that he is indeed victorious and he will return to complete what he started. My friends, stay faithful. Stay faithful. That is the message of the book of Revelation and any teaching on the end times. Now, I didn't want to get too in-depth with the subject of the end times, but I didn't feel it was helpful to ignore it completely. The rapture of the church is prior to the second coming. And whether someone dies before the second coming or if they're caught up in the rapture, they will go to paradise or the intermediate state. And what's paradise like? Well, it's a place of joy. It's a place where we will be with the Lord. Those who have died in Christ are reunited with each other. This is the heaven that Revelation describes prior to the new heaven and earth in chapter 21. This is where the angels rejoice when a sinner repents. 
This is a place of perfection, and yet it's not the final home for us. I was trying to make sense of how we will transition from being in paradise to the new heaven and new earth, and how one could possibly be different from another. And the only analogy I could think of to make sense of it was to imagine going on an amazing vacation. On this amazing vacation, you're with the people you love most. Everything is perfect. The weather, the accommodation, food, there's fun, it's activities, it's relaxing, it's enjoyable, it's a perfect vacation. Then you're told that everything you love about your vacation destination is going to come home with you. Suddenly, Syracuse is going to have a beach with the palm trees and jet skis. All the restaurants you love on vacation are coming to your hometown. But at the same time, your hometown is getting a major cleanup. There's going to be no more traffic or mosquitoes or any problems or unmet needs. Even the Onondaga Lake Parkway Bridge is going to get raised six feet. <laughs> Everything you love about your hometown is there. Everything you love about vacation is there. And everything negative about your hometown is gone forever. So now home is also the perfect vacation spot. And the perfect vacation spot is your home. This is just a, an imperfect analogy. But we're created, we've been designed to live in creation. The intermediate state or paradise will be perfect. And the difference between paradise and the new earth where we will live forever is like a perfect vacation that will become a perfect home. Now following the rapture, we will stand before Jesus in judgment. Jesus talks about this repeatedly and so do the apostles. This understandably can fill us with dread and worry, especially as we know just how far away from the mark we are. This is a passage from the book that I mentioned earlier, Bible Doctrines. There is the judgment seat of Christ. This judgment is for believers only. It is not a judgment on sin, for the believer, by accepting Christ as Savior, has had his sins judged at the cross already. This judgment is a matter of appropriate rewards for stewardship of opportunity and energy during one's life on earth. A system of rewards is part of Christ's teaching about the hereafter, given elaborate treatment in the Gospels, especially in the parables. Our deeds will be examined by the fire of God's judgment. Motives will be judged. And before whom do believers appear for this judgment? Revelation pictures the glory of the triumphant Christ before whose eyes nothing can be hidden. In view of the responsibility entrusted to believers as stewards of precious opportunity, it is necessary that we first subject our own lives to judgment so that we will not come under later judgment. If we are responsive to the gentle urging of the Holy Spirit and seek daily to allow Christ to live through us, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. Now from everything I've been able to study this week about believers standing before the judgment seat of Christ, it's clear that this is not a time of condemnation or punishment. I also can't speculate about what the rewards that will be distributed will be like. But the best way I can make sense of it is that we'll finally have the Lord's perspective on our attitudes, thoughts, opinions, and actions. This judgment will show us where we needed to adjust our thinking or the reason why an action was harmful. My opinion, and it is just my opinion, is that this is a part of the refining and the perfecting that will happen when we step into eternity. We will also see how our actions positively affected the world. The money we gave to missionaries that we've never met, how did our giving make a difference? The person in our small group, how did our words shape their heart? What impact did our prayers have on situations? 
How did the kindness shown to a stranger have a long-lasting effect? Did the years of faithful serving the Lord make a difference? And this judgment will end in joy. We'll take on the Lord's perspective and rejoice at what we learn. Even the things we should regret will be causes of joy because we'll learn a little more about how much we have been forgiven. The believer's judgment should motivate us to live differently today, but we should take heart that it will end in joy. And when the Lord is ready at the second coming, we will be ready to enjoy our permanent home, the new heavens and the new earth. From the book of Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. If one person claps, we all have to. For those in Christ who have died, they have gone to be with the Lord in paradise. As the name suggests, paradise is perfect, and that's where we will wait until the Lord fulfills his promises around the second coming. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive our rewards for how we lived, and we will gain the correction we need for where we went wrong. And in his perfect timing, he will return and usher in the new heavens and new earth, and that is where we will reside for eternity. Now, I've identified five common questions, and I want to take some moment and walk through these. And so five common questions about heaven. I'm sure there's more than these five, but in my experience and conversations this past week and through my study over the last month, these appear to be the most common questions. So the first common question I would say is, in heaven, will we be ourselves? Will we be ourselves or will we transform into an angel or have another personality? The answer is no. You are redeemed, you are forgiven, and you are promised eternity. A verse from Corinthians says, we will be at home with the Lord. There's no suggestion here or anywhere else that in heaven we will completely transform in who we are or reinvent our very being. Our soul remains intact. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, after death, the rich man was still the rich man. Lazarus was still Lazarus, and Abraham was still Abraham. We will be restored. We will be perfected. And every imperfection will be washed away but you will be you. Your soul will be you. There's no reason from Scripture to think that you will undergo a, a complete wipe of your memory or that you'll forget things from this life. I believe that we should expect our thoughts and memories to also be restored and redeemed, that we will have a new perspective on what has happened and a new perspective on how we acted. And as we discussed last week, the eternal kingdom of heaven is the ultimate story in restoration. In heaven, you will certainly be yourself physically and mentally, but you'll be fully restored bodily, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You'll be more alive than you ever have been. The second common question, will I see loved ones again? 
Will I see loved ones again? This is possibly the biggest concern that people have about heaven, the longing to be with those who have passed. Last week, I spoke about the alien feeling we have when someone dies that we're not hardwired to cope with death, that the longing to be back with those we love is very real. This is a verse from the book of Genesis. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Now, it says something almost identical about Abraham and Isaac, that upon dying, it's described as being gathered to his people. It's a picture of dying and being reunited, not with strangers, but with people we know and love. There are other places where we read about crowds of people, and there's no reason to think that we will be ourselves and yet only see strangers in heaven. The third common question, will I be married in heaven? Matthew 22, 23, that same day Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question to try and trip Jesus up. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children, so his brothers married his widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, for all seven were to marry her? This is the kind of question youth group students come up with. Just saying. Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now it's worth remembering as we consider this, that this question is designed to trip Jesus up. Of course they fail, but they're not asking this question in good faith. But I think to grasp what Jesus is teaching, we should remember some historical and cultural differences. In the modern West, marriage is all about love and romance. The stores start loading up on Valentine's Day stuff the day after Christmas. You can guarantee that at any given moment, a romantic movie is playing in movie theaters. This is our main understanding and expectation of marriage. But throughout history, marriage has been driven by a sense of protection and joining families together and providing for each other and carrying on the family name. In our culture, we reject such things as being oppressive and archaic, but to the people Jesus is talking to, these were the main components of marriage. The romance and butterflies in the tummy was a nice bonus. I believe that the main point Jesus is saying, remember that the original question was about a widow needing someone to care for her. Jesus is saying that these aspects of marriage will be irrelevant in heaven. There will be no need to provide for each other or to join families together or to carry on the family name. In heaven, I believe you'll see your spouse and you should look forward to seeing them. But our relationship in heaven may look different than a marriage here on earth and you won't need marriage to provide protection or to preserve the family name. We won't need marriage to form a family unit. But I'm sure spouses that have gone before us will be people we rush to see when we step into eternity. This leads to a series of other questions, such as what if someone was married multiple times and remarried after a spouse passed? Now, the Bible doesn't specifically address this, but I remain confident that pure relationships will exist in eternity. So when our restored emotional and relational perfection, the problems this may cause on earth will not be present in heaven. Similarly, the questions about childbirth or pregnancy or reproduction the Bible does not give us a direct answer. There's no description of any new children being born in the new heavens and new earth, but that doesn't necessarily give us the final answer. 
So I'll freely admit that I was unable to get an answer about whether there'll be sex or childbirth in heaven, so I'll add that to the long list of things I'm going to trust God for. But we will indeed be able to be with our spouses, and I'm unsure how our relationship in heaven would compare to a marriage as we experience now, but I'm sure it'll be a relationship even more pure and loving and enjoyable than any relationship we've ever experienced here on earth. Fourth thing, fourth question about heaven, will heaven be boring? The misconception here is that God is boring. The misconception is that fun is found in sin and the brokenness of the world. Revelation talks about there being worship around God's throne and some have groaned at the thought of heaven as an eternal church service. Now, everyone at Word of Life would love to have an eternal church service in heaven. I've even been told that my sermons can feel like an eternity. Why are you laughing? Anyway. But remember, heaven is restoring what was lost at the fall. At the fall, there was work for Adam to do before he sinned. He had a garden to enjoy. All the good things about creation and humanity are not going to disappear in heaven, but they will be restored and even better than we can imagine. Even geographically, it's described in the Bible that there will be mountains and rivers and cities. As I said last week, to start understanding what heaven is like, start looking at the world around you, contemplate what has been lost, what is damaged, what is broken, and imagine it being restored. The worship of the Lord will be desired and enjoyed, not weighed down or distracted by the concerns of the world. Five common questions by heaven. Number five, will I see my pets in heaven? As you can imagine, there's no passage that specifically addresses pets in heaven. However, there are passages that talk about creation groaning because of the curse upon the world, and that includes animals. There are passages also that describe animals being in the restored creation, so while I cannot point to a Bible verse to prove it, I don't think it's an irrational hope that beloved pets and animals will be in the restored creation. So those would be the questions that I feel are the most common, and there may be more, and uh, perhaps they'll be addressed next week, or perhaps some of those continued study items will be a, a big assistance. But I did feel that it would be irregular to discuss heaven with the church and not address the tragic reality of hell. There are some very upsetting stories from different churches or preachers or denominations throughout the past 2,000 years that have misused the reality of hell to manipulate and coerce and guilt people into doing things and acting a certain way. These stories and accounts are upsetting and troubling, and consequently, there's a very real temptation to shy away from ever talking about hell. As awful as it is to think about, the Bible does tell us about that it is a reality, and it's something we should recognize. I don't share this because I want to drive fear into our church, but I simply couldn't reasonably go through a series on heaven without addressing the realities of hell. I mentioned the Pew Research study that found 83% of Americans believe in an afterlife. That same study found that as many as 25% of Christians do not believe in hell. I can only speculate and guess why this is. Why do a quarter of Christians not believe in hell? Maybe it's because churches have stopped talking about hell as often as we used to. It's also possible that many believers don't prioritize reading the Bible, and it's also possible that those that do read the Bible gloss over and dismiss the teaching about hell or don't recognize the Bible as authoritative. Now, I have no desire to manipulate the reality of hell. I don't like the idea of scaring or guilting people into responding to the gospel. But I'm going to lay out the Bible's teachings on hell and 
Hopefully it helps us appreciate the good news of Jesus more and more, not drive fear into us because as John writes, perfect love drives out fear. So in the Bible, the idea of death can be understood as separation. Death is the soul separating from the body. And in the new creation, there needs to be a separation from holy and evil. In essence, sin, death, evil, unholiness, suffering, it needs to go somewhere to die. It needs to be separated from what's holy and good. Hell is created for the devil and the fallen angels. Instead of their evil infecting the new creation in the way it has infected the present creation, they are separated and removed. Hell is not purposed for people, but at the final judgment, those who have rejected God and embraced evil will also be separated from the new heavens and the new earth. People who have refused God's gift of grace, those who chose to serve anyone or anything besides God, will also face the consequences of their actions. And because of sin, humanity is heading by default towards hell. This verse in Romans spells it out, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. The wages of sin is death. The natural and expected consequence of sin is death. And death is separation from life. Humanity's default is sin, and so our deserved destination is hell. We might hate this. We might find it deeply upsetting and offensive. But no one claims to be perfect. No one claims that they have perfectly upheld their own moral code. No one claims they have upheld society's view of right or wrong. Nobody says that they have been perfectly being able to fulfill their family's set of values. If we acknowledge that we have failed to live up to the ethics we impose on ourselves or even society's values or even our family standards, we should all be ready to admit that we have definitely failed to live up to God's standard. And this is why the message of Jesus is so amazing. That those who place their faith and loyalty and trust in Jesus will not face the consequence of their actions. The believer's place in heaven won't be because of their lack of sin. It won't be our good behavior that gets us a spot. It will be the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It will be him taking on the sin of the world and paying the price I could never pay. My behavior and conduct will change. And I will care about what God says about morality and ethics because I'm alive in Christ and my eyes are opened and my heart is changed. But my good behavior and obedience will never be close to being good enough to earn me a place in heaven. But the horrible and deeply upsetting reality is that it is justified and fair that we are separated from God and our eternity should be outside of God's goodness and holiness. And this is why God's grace is so amazing and life-changing. The message of Jesus will never make sense until we accept and agree that we do not deserve God's forgiveness or to be included in His promises. But made, motivated by love, He gives it so abundantly. The Bible uses images like fire and a lake of fire to describe what it's going to be like. But possibly the worst thing about hell is that nobody will be able to say that they don't deserve to be there. And there is no way to appeal our innocence. It's horrible to imagine. It truly is. It's eternity cut off, separated from any of the good and joyful and peaceful and inspiring and fulfilling things about life. It's absent. It's removed. It's gone. And nobody that is in hell will have the ability to claim that they don't deserve this. 
their eyes will be wide open and they'll be completely aware that this is the consequence of their own willful, deliberate, and conscious rejection of God. In a similar way, that all those who spend eternity in hell will understand that this is justified, everyone in heaven will know that they do not deserve to be there. Everyone in heaven will know that they are only there because they have responded to God's amazing gift of grace. I'm going to read a long passage of Scripture. If you're prone to having your mind wander, I'm begging you, stay locked in on this reading, and I'm asking every single one of us to take this personally. Romans 4, starting halfway through verse 24, God will also count us as righteous if we believe in Him. The one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, He was handed over to die because of our sins, and He was raised to life to make us right with God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because of one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Can this place please erupt with praise? for what God Almighty did by sending His Son to the cross. I hope you have a chance to reread that passage this week. Sounds like a great idea to read it every day when I get up out of bed. But eternity separated from God is what's deserved, but it's not what He wants. So He made a way. He sent His Son as the Savior of the world, the Rescuer, the Redeemer. There's a well-respected preacher who I listened to a while ago, and I had to stop and not return to this man's teaching because 
He spoke with a strange kind of joy that some who are far from God will spend an eternity in unknowable horror. He didn't seem upset by this, but rather he had a smug satisfaction that he was one of the ones who wouldn't go to hell, but didn't show any concern or compassion for those who might. And unfortunately for him, I don't think his attitude reflects the heart of God. From Second Peter, the Lord isn't really being slow by his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He doesn't want anyone's destination to be hell, but wants everyone to repent. God wants people included in his grace. It grieves the heart of God that people reject the forgiveness he has made freely available. The reality of hell may be justified and even fair, but I'm sure it still brings sorrow to the loving Father. It's a common concern and worry from believers who are unsure about the eternal fate of loved ones. This is an understanding cause of worry. Neither me or anyone else is the judge, only God and God alone. But I trust that if someone professes that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. If someone is living with God at the center of their lives and they have placed their faith and trust in Him, I have complete confidence that they will be in heaven. Anyone else? That leaves me concerned. I'm not sure how God will judge their lives. Did they make a last-minute decision to follow Jesus right before dying? Did the prayer they prayed years earlier affect their eternity? I don't have the answers to these questions. It means that there can be hope for those who have lost a loved one and they're unsure about their relationship with God or uncertain about their salvation. But I don't want to be uncertain. I don't want to be unsure. I want to know for myself and my loved ones and anyone else, I want to be certain that my salvation and their salvation is secure and that my eternity will be with Him. I don't like the feeling of maybe. And how do we ensure that maybe is indisputably a yes, that we can confidently say that someone is indeed saved? is to follow Jesus with passion and faith and an unswerving loyalty, is to live day to day trusting Him, that we come back to Him quickly when we get off course, that we make Him the true central point of our lives. This is why I keep saying over and over again at nauseam, if you believe that Jesus is who He says He is, the only logical response is to follow Him with everything. I don't want to get as close as I can to the line or hope to squeak into heaven on a technicality. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life and live with a confidence that because of the grace of God, I'm forgiven and welcomed into the eternal family of God. I want to read that passage from the book of Romans and breathe a sigh of relief, not fret and panic about whether I'm going to make it. Thank God it's not my perfection, but His perfection that means I can live with that blessed assurance that He has done enough and I have gratefully accepted His invitation. A common question is about the salvation of children or people with cognitive disabilities or people who have never heard the name of Jesus. The best answer I can give is that God is fair and He is just. The belief of the Assemblies of God is that children who die before the age of accountability are without question included in the redemptive work of Jesus. The age of accountability is not a number or a specific birthday, but there is a point in someone's life when they're able to figure out the acceptance or rejection of the Lord. The same principle is at work for those with mental or cognitive disabilities. As for those who have never heard of the God of the Bible or the name of Jesus, Paul points out to the Romans that creation screams about a creator, that we are without excuse. But I repeat that in his sovereignty, God is the judge. 
and he is correct, and he is compassionate. There's a guy on YouTube, I believe I've mentioned him before, his name's Sean McDowell. I took a screenshot of, uh, of his YouTube page. Um, Sean McDowell, he's a professor at Biola University, specializing in apologetics. He's a real interesting guy. Um, I really appreciate being able to listen to what he has to say. But one of the things that he has said as he spends time talking with college students around America is if he's engaging a conversation with someone who professes that they are an atheist, he asks that if you were satisfied with the proof that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, would you humbly submit to his lordship and follow him? If they got to the point where every objection was addressed and every doubt was overcome, and they got to the point where they believe that Jesus is who he says he is, would they follow him with everything? And repeatedly, the atheistic students will say no. That even if they did believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, they would be unwilling to give up all that they would have to forego to follow Jesus. And I guess I appreciate the honesty that even if they did get to the point where they truly believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that despite that, they would want to cling on to their life without Him. And this becomes one of the most confrontational aspects of Jesus' teaching. From Luke 9, then He said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. The whole idea of give up your own way or deny yourself is possibly the most offensive part of the gospel to modern 21st century Americans. The suggestion that my thoughts, my ideas, my opinions, my rights, my feelings, my truth is not as important as following Jesus' example of picking up a cross and following him. In a world that is determined to become more obsessed with self and indulging oneself, this teaching from Jesus becomes more and more offensive. Another example is from Matthew 16. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? I just want to sit with that for a moment. If you get all of it, all of it, everything the world has to offer, you get it all. You can sleep with countless people. You can make crazy amounts of money. You can get applause from stadiums of people. You can have people tell you all day and every day how amazing you are. You climb to achieve power and influence. What if you get every daydream and achieve every ambition that you've ever had? What if you get all the affirmation and adoration of the world? What if you win every argument? What if you're loved by those you like and feared by those you hate? What if you're surrounded by the most impressive people and go to the most stunning places? What if you get all of it? After all the money, all the sex, all the parties, all the travel, and all the applause, the question still stands. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Peter also talks about this. He says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. This is only temporary. Creation, the world, our life today, temporary. We should have a temporal perspective on the things of this world. Yes, we are here, but this is not it. There is more to our future. There is an eternity. It is right and appropriate that we are excited and anticipating with joy our eternal home. And one more time, this verse from Matthew we read earlier on. 
Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Where your priorities are, where your greatest concerns are, that is going to get your best efforts and your strongest attention. If your heart and your focus and your passion is toward heaven and eternity, then your life and your actions and your decisions and your values will all reflect where your treasure is. May we never forget the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus is proof and a demonstration that God does not want people to suffer the consequence of their actions. The inaccurate perspective is that God is tallying up our good deeds and our mistakes and sins, and we can only hope that the good column is better than the bad column. The correct view is that the bad column is so bad and impossible to remedy that an eternity separated from God is the, inter- is the inevitable outcome. But the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as Some people think, no, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. God wants everyone to spend eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. There is an invitation to a party that you should be excluded from, but you are welcomed back as a child of God despite everything you have done to remove yourself from the family. You have been offered forgiveness for every wrong and offense you have ever been a part of. There is a promise of eternity that you should accept with endless gratitude and amazement. And how does it change our lives here on earth? At the worship team, if you guys are ready to come back, how does it change our lives here on earth, having our hearts and minds towards heaven? It makes some difficult things easier. If we have an eternal perspective, it makes it easier to resist temptation. If we have an eternal perspective, it makes it easier to submit to God. If we have a perspective on eternity and a care for eternity, then we'll care about the eternity of others. If we have an eternal perspective of our minds are towards heaven, we'll worry less. If we have our minds and our heart towards heaven, then we'll treat the world differently. It stops being about what you can get out of it, but more about how you can help usher in the kingdom of God. I invite everyone to stand with me. I spent uh, close to 10 years as a youth pastor. Loved it. Really do. Love youth ministry, and I still do. And as you can imagine, teenagers, students, they had tons of questions about heaven and hell. It was on their mind, and they wanted answers. And so oftentimes, that would be a conversation I'd have with them. And I found myself giving a canned answer, a canned response whenever these questions came up. Of course, we're spending these few weeks taking the time to explore it in details. But my one-sentence response that I would give to students for years is just as applicable and just as true for us as it was for them. My one sentence that I would give as a youth pastor to students wanting to know more is simply this. No one goes to heaven and feels ripped off. And no one goes to hell and says it's better than I thought. Heaven will be wildly better than we can begin to imagine. And hell will be infinitely worse. The good news of Jesus is that we don't have to suffer the consequence we deserve. From the book of Titus, who read this last week as well, once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. But, thank God for the but, 
When God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Amen. Lord, please, can this not just be words on a page. Please, can your scriptures come alive to us today that you have made it possible for us to be confident about our eternity with you. We don't deserve it. We acknowledge and recognize and humbly admit we do not deserve it. But with gratitude and amazement, we say, Lord, you are so good that you gave us the forgiveness we don't deserve. You made it possible. Jesus, you paid the price I could never pay. Oh, Lord, may this become alive to your people. Lord, the reality of eternity may become alive to people today. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen, amen. Come on, let's spend some time in worship together.